Well, good evening. Welcome. My name is Jared. I'm excited that you're here. We're in part four on our series in Philippians, and we are in Philippians 1, 18 through 20 to really 26 tonight. If you haven't checked it out, you can go to the Bible app and go to events and follow along with all the notes right there so you have them. You can email them to yourself later. It's super convenient. Tonight, if I would title my message, it would be How to Win, or uh, if, you're, if you're wanting an alternate title, How to Stop Taking L's, uh, How to Stop Taking L's. Um, I want to put up a picture of my oldest son, Thatcher. Uh, this is a picture we just got back from vacation, and uh, there's, there's Thatch. He's six, going on about 18, um, and he is so funny when we were taking these pictures. Our two little boys are like, like still sweetie, cutie, toddler boys, and he's like rolling his eyes at us. Like one of the, we, we had some pictures taken while we were on vacation, and one of like the frames you can see, he's like in the middle of rolling his eyes in, because he's, he's learning that parents are like not cool, and that we're kind of a killjoy. Um, and that's coming out, like one of his favorite things to do with me is uh, we play a lot of games together, where that's like, he likes to play Switch, he plays some games on the Switch, or like sometimes we'll get out the, the classic card games, we'll get out Uno, uh, we'll get out uh, like a, a Go Fish, uh, our version's called Go Dino, um, we're learning the dinosaur names as we're going. Um, and then uh, he loves to play uh, this game that's really complicated and hard to learn called War. Um, but we make it super fun and really interesting. So like when I throw out a card and I win, I'm like too easy and I take it back. And then whenever I lose one, I'm like, I didn't want that anyway. So we kind of have this banter going back and we get in each other's faces and I'm trying to teach him good sportsmanship. Uh, it's really fun. Uh, my wife calls me a, a bad winner or a sore winner. It's really, really cool uh, to shape your kids that way. Um, but uh, as we play games, um, he's also learning how to bend the rules so that you win. Um, and that's really fun. We were at a restaurant, we were on vacation, and, um, and there was like a, a, the kids menu and it had like three or four tic-tac-toe deals on it. And uh, he knows how to play tic-tac-toe. So we grabbed two crayons and we're playing tic-tac-toe and you know, I'm X's and he's O's. And he keeps like trying to change it where he's like, if he gets behind, he's like, weren't you O's? I'm like, no, bro, you were X's and you're going to lose. And a part of like me playing games with him, I want him to learn like, I'm better at you than stuff. And I'm going to stuff you in basketball. And I'm going to like beat you in stuff. Uh, and sometimes it's like, I'm fine to let him win or, or kind of show him how to win. But in tic-tac-toe, I was just, I was on a tear. I was dominating. He, he would put uh, a circle in the middle top quad quadrant and I'm like, no bro, you got to put it in the corners. And I basically have you down. Like I can win three different ways from here. And you're going to learn today, okay? So uh, we're at this restaurant. We've got our other two kids there, me and my wife. And uh, we're playing tic-tac-toe. And I would, like, talk to, like, play with them and then talk to my wife. And I looked down, and, and, like, we each had two on the board. And I was getting ready to win. And all of a sudden, he has, like, all of them filled in with his X or O. And I was like, hey, what happened here? And he's like, I don't know. Looks like I won. It was like, he filled them in, but he still didn't get three in a row. But he just drew a line. And he's like... So I got one. Like, he'll, he'll change the rules regardless so that he wins. Um, and it's super fun to be around. And, like, on my end of things, I'm like, I hate losing. So I'm like, no, that doesn't count. Cross that one out. Play again. You're going to play it the right way, and you're going to lose. Um, but that, in Thatcher's mind, he's like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. Like, he loves playing Super Smash Brothers on the Switch, and he's Smash fans in the room. Um, he loves playing that. And his favorite thing to do is do, like, the practice mode where the, the guy that you're fighting can't move. And you just get to beat him up. And, and, and win. And it's like, he, he doesn't ever lose. He hates losing. And it's like, that's such a natural human thing. And uh, I just think about what it is in this, this stage of life. And uh, whether you feel like you peaked in high school or you're peaking now in college or you're post-college and you're like, 
I think I peaked back then and you're just now realizing it. Um, it, It's tough to start taking L's. Maybe you're like post high school and you're like, man, college, I was listening to a podcast and this, this girl was talking about like, after her freshman year of college, she kind of sat back and was like, is this all college actually is? Like, I thought it was going to be so much, and that was it? That was my freshman year of college? Like, this is what it looks like? And I think that happens at every stage of life. You get to the next stage. Ryan kind of talked about this last week, and you, you, you're always striving towards the next thing, and then you get to the next thing, and you're like, I thought it was going to make me feel a certain way. And ultimately what ends up happening is we think that the next stage is going to be a win and it ends up being a loss. And we're like, why does it feel like I keep taking losses? Why does it feel like, like whatever happens in this season, I can't win? And the alternative is really, really difficult. Like if failure is the alternative, why is it that I can't feel like I just get, catch a win? Um, If that's you tonight, I want you to lean into what Paul says because he says something that seems so ridiculous. He says something that's like quoted in the Bible or quoted out out in the church quite a bit. It's such an interesting thing to say that you're like, I don't even know if I can live that. Like, it's one of those things you see in the Bible and maybe you get it tattooed on you or you get it on a coffee mug and you're like, it seems neat, but I don't know that knowing me, I can ever live up to this thing. So I want to read it to you. It's Philippians 1, 18 through 21, and it's specifically 21, but I'm going to start in 18. This is where Ryan left off last week where they're talking about like, Paul's in prison, so some other guys hop in and start preaching the gospel, and some of them are doing it out of bad intentions, and and he picks up in verse 18, and he says, what then? And the the attitude is like, what does it matter? And he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether they're doing it out of an obnoxious reason or they're doing it for a good purpose, Christ is proclaimed. He's like, man, that's my ultimate win, that Christ is proclaimed. And he says, and in that, I rejoice, And then he repeats it again. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And you hear that, and that's like some William Wallace stuff that you're like, man, how, how do you get that attitude? How do you get that like sense of like liberty and freedom to say something that like Christ is going to be honored in my life or my death? How do you have that attitude? And, and it, he takes it almost a step further in verse 21, and this is the verse I was talking about earlier. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I read that and I'm like, Man, that's, that's such a bold statement. Like, even just the phrase, like, to, to die is gain, like, you hear that, and it almost sets off alarms, red flags in your head where you're like, is this dude okay? Like, if you had a friend who said that, you need to check in on them. But, but he's saying, like, if I die, it's for the better. And then he says the, the phrase before that, to live is Christ, and you're like, is that even grammatically correct? Like, it's a verb and then a, a proper noun, like that, that doesn't add up. Like you can't diagram that sentence in the right way. To live is Christ. What does that even mean? But Paul kind of says it here and he kind of is taking the same approach that my son does. He's going to win regardless of the true outcome. He's saying in my life I will live for Jesus and in my death it will be for a gain. And I read this and I'm like, I don't know that I can live up to that right now. I don't know that I can look at this and say, I'm doing it. 
This is what I live every day. This is what I truly believe, but I think he sets a benchmark for what following Jesus and the attitude and the mindset that we can truly have, not just something that lives off in the distance, but so that we can live and say to live is to honor and glorify and serve and cherish God, Jesus Christ, and to die is better. That's tough. So how do we go and do it? I think Paul knew three things. I think Paul knows he, he is, he's experienced, he's well-versed, he's deep in three things. And these are our points today. There are three things. Paul knows what it is to be forgiven, he knows his father, and he knows his future. His first thing is he, he knows what it is to be forgiven. And, and if you read in Acts, you read about Paul, and then his name was Saul. And, and his story is that of, he, he was such a proper religious person who, who probably knew most of the Old Testament at the time, had it memorized. And he knew things like the back of his hand. He knew the right way to live. He knew what, the, what by the book meant. And then when Jesus came along, threw everything for a loop, And then when Jesus' followers came along, it was so against the grain of what Saul, now Paul, knew. He said, these people are so against God. He he was zealous, like that's the word he used for the things of God. But he he took it and said, I I want the things of God, but not God. So he he had this attitude that said, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to imprison you. I'm going to put you away if you say that you're following God and it's not the way that I live. And and it was kind of this like terrorist, like I'm going to hurt you if you're not the same as me attitude. But God meets him and forgives him and changes him. And you see that like he has this encounter with God and then he has this encounter with the people of God and he spends time with them and it drastically changes who he is. And I can imagine the way that he saw himself and the way that he saw his sense of justice and his sense of like, it's on me to get these things done. It's on me to make sure that people know that there's a wrong way to live and you are living the wrong way and I'm gonna show you and if you don't stop, I'm gonna hurt you. And if you don't stop when I hurt you, I'm gonna throw you in prison. He had all this angst and he had all this anger and then he had this encounter with God and an encounter with the people that had been changed by God and he... He just talks about, like if you read Paul's letters, he just talks about God's forgiveness. And he talks about how it's a free gift and there wasn't anything. He came from this culture of like, I've got to make it all happen myself. And now he's, he talks about it in Romans and says it's a free gift. In Ephesians, he says, I was dead in my trespasses. I was dead in my sin. But God, who's a, who made me alive together with him, he, he's like, listen, you've got to understand. So when, when Paul talks, he's like, he has this in his rearview mirror. He has this contrast in his mind of like, this is what it looked like. I know. I know what that death life used to look like. It's not good. And now I know what life together with God looks like. So when he's talking, and he says, whether it's life together with you all, or whether it's death, I'm good. He's able to do it because he knows where he stands with God. He knows that he has been forgiven of all of his old sin. He could have walked around with like this kind of like hooded, shameful, like, man, if that dude finds out who I am, and now I'm on the wrong side of things, like, These Christian people might be mad at me. They might try to come for my head. They might like 
not accept me, but he knew so strongly who he was and his forgiveness that he found in God. He's like, so what? So what if these people harm me? Why? Because he knew his story. And I just want to encourage you to know your story. To know that like, where were you before you met Christ? How did you meet Christ? And what is life like now? And that second piece, that third piece is always changing. You're always growing. You're always getting closer to God. You're always growing in your holiness, in your spiritual disciplines, in your community, in your service. But one of the coolest things is to like sit there and think. And I would challenge you, first thing to do out of this message is like take a sheet of paper and mark it up in thirds and at the top right before. What was life like before I met Jesus? What were my attitudes? What were my feelings? What were my thoughts? Where did I think my life was headed? And then in the middle third right, how? How did I meet Jesus? Who invited me? Who showed me his kindness? We all have a story like that. And a lot of times that before, how, that after is correlated to the before. Man, before, I can tell you that even as a, as a young child, I, I was brought up in church and saved at a young age. And I didn't know everything, but I knew that I was separated from God because of my sin, and I needed God to change that. But one of my main issues was that I was like, I would do anything to make sure that I had people's approval and people's good intentions. I just wanted people to like me. Is that still a desire? Absolutely. But now I get to lay that in front of Jesus and say, God, you love me. You accept me. You've forgiven me. So I don't have to work to earn people's favor because I've got it from God. And I can't work to gain any more favor from God. So now life after this, like I get to serve God out of just love for him and receiving his love and receiving his kindness and go, God, this is incredible. I'm not held down by that old sin and shame anymore. I want to read the, the next verse to you. It's, it's Philippians 1.22. This is what he says right after, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, and he starts on this little, this interesting phrasing, and we'll get into it more in the next point, but he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet I, which I shall not shall choose, I cannot tell. He's, he kind of hit pause there, and it's like, it kind of starts to mumble his words, like he's in this train of thought, and then he hits pause, and he's like, I, I don't know which one is better, which is kind of a crazy thing. But then he starts to, to, to let you know, like, if I'm alive, if I'm with you on this earth, if I'm, what he says, in the flesh, what that means for me is fruitful labor. That doesn't mean that he's like, what that means is I get to go do whatever I want, He's saying, what my life means if I'm on this earth is service to my king. He knows that his life has been so changed by God, there's nothing that he can do to make his life meaningful outside of Christ. That's why he says to live is Christ. And if you know the story of Paul, you know that he is traveling. He's doing all the things that he should be doing. He's doing, he's just serving God. And at this point, he's in prison. He's writing the book of Philippians from prison, and he's saying to live is Christ, and what it's like to be alive is fruitful labor for me. Like, you have to understand where Paul's writing this from. Paul's writing this in a prison cell. Paul was a person that probably could have 
hung his hat on, defined himself, took pride in the fact that he's like, man, I just, I traveled all over Europe. I traveled all over Middle East. Like I'm, I'm all over the place and I'm serving God. That's what I do. I travel, I serve, I, I encourage churches. I challenge them, I admonish them. That's what I do. And he gets locked up in prison and he's writing them and he's not like saying like, man, life is meaningless now. He's writing them saying, if I'm alive, if my heart is beating, that means fruitful labor to me. You know why? Because he didn't equate his purpose in life with what he did. He equated his purpose in life with the fact that he had been forgiven. Definition. Standard. His life would be defined by person forgiven by God. So when he got to heaven, he didn't come up and... and, and God says, like, hey, why should I let you into heaven? He didn't come up and say, like, okay, let me show you these maps in the back of the Bible. That's me. Like, I did that. That red line, me. So I think I'm a pretty big deal. I think you need to let me in. He, no, he, all Paul could say is it's Jesus and his goodness. And find Jesus in heaven and say, look at the nail scars on his hands and the nail scars in his feet. That's the reason I can be let into heaven because Jesus took the payment for my sin. So that frees him up because he knows he's forgiven. Can I tell you that like one of the biggest things that we get to talk to young adults about is like, what's that next transition? What's that next stage of life? Do I, do I move back home? Do I go to St. Louis, Kansas City? Do I move to Dallas? Do I take the job? Do I stay in town? Do I, do I minister here? Do I, what do I do? And it's fun. It, it's honestly one of the coolest things to talk to young adults through transition. And I really think that there are some wise decisions, there are some unwise decisions, but there are some things that's like, you get to use the gifting that God's given you, and you get to love God. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate what we need to do for God, and we think that God has like hidden his plan somewhere, and we've got to like find it. And we've got to get a shovel out and a broom and go paleontologist and try to find what it is that God's hidden for us. And Paul's like, hey, whatever it is that God has for me, whether it's a prison cell, whether it's, like, Paul went through some really difficult things, tra- like, like shipwrecked, snake bitten, beaten a bunch of times, and he didn't look back and go, looks like those are closed doors. He just picked up his stuff, went to the next town. And it says that the Spirit led him, but I think sometimes we just need to look for opportunity. How can we use our gifting our passion to serve God. That's what Paul did. We have the freedom to do that because of what Jesus did for us, because of our forgiven state, because of who he tells us that we are. And we get to serve so clearly, so easily. Um, I want to read you a couple of verses, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. This is where Paul gets his attitude towards service. Philippians 2, 5, 8, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What that means is Jesus came to earth, and he could have sat on a throne. He could have made everybody his servant, and he came in and he served people. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So Paul's perception of what being forgiven looks like comes from Jesus who came to earth and could have said, listen, I'm like perfect, like I'm, I'm Jesus, I'm God himself, I don't have to serve, I don't have to do anything, but he did. And now we get the moniker of forgiven on us and we could go, I'm good to go. I don't have to do anything for anybody. But Paul is pointing this connection and saying, listen, Jesus himself came and he served, so you should go serve. Galatians 6.10, and let us not grow weary, 9 and 10, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 2 Corinthians 9.8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You have this position of forgiven, and you get to take that position to that of a servant. This is how we take who Jesus is and show it to the people around us. Why? Because the comparison game is gone. When you're not forgiven, when you're not living in this space, you look at someone in the same field as you and you go, man, your success is my failure. Your rising is my lowering. So I'm going to sabotage. I'm going to hope the worst for you. But if we are in Christ, if we're forgiven, we get to look at somebody who's doing well and go, that's awesome. Good for them. That's so good that God blessed you in that way, especially when our attitude is that of Paul's and we're going, man, my win? Look at Paul's attitude in verse 18. He says, people are preaching in my absence. What that meant is that that some people were like, man, Paul's gone. He was leading the church. What are we going to do? Well, we were his guys, so now we're going to go and preach because we love God and we love Paul. And there were some people that were like, Paul's gone and we get to have a win now. And there's some people that were following him that we can, and Paul's like, who cares? What matters is that the gospel's going forward. What if we had that attitude in our workplace so that when someone else gets a promotion, we go, that is so awesome and you are so deserving of that because our win is not here on earth, it's in heaven. Our win is when we get to heaven and you don't know, you don't know the the, the layers of service. You don't know what that's going to do. You don't get to see the ripple. You don't get to see the tide. You don't get to see what your service, what your selflessness, what your obedience does for the kingdom of God, but we are called to obedience. In 1 Corinthians, there's people that are going, okay, there's some people in the church that like some are following this one guy, some are following Paul, and Paul goes, hey, it doesn't matter. Some people sow, some people water, but God does the growing. He's shedding the importance off of himself and giving it to God. Why? Because he doesn't care who gets the win. What if we had this attitude? What if we had this attitude with other Christian organizations What if we had this attitude with campus ministries? What if we had this attitude with other churches in town? Why? Because Springfield is big enough that we need people that serve our city. We need more people that are laboring, more people that are loving our city, more people that are preaching the gospel and reaching people. Why? Because we have the moniker of forgiveness upon us. So it doesn't matter if you win and I lose. It's Jesus who gets the win, right? Paul knew he was forgiven. Point two, Paul knows his father. 
Paul knows his father. In Philippians 1, verse 19, he says, Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. When he says deliverance there, it's almost what he's talking about in forgiveness. He's saying not just deliverance from the prison cell. He, he legitimately didn't know if he was going to get out of prison. He thought he could have a lifetime sentence or he could be sentenced to death or he could get out. But a lot of commentaries and scholars agree that what he's talking about there is not deliverance from shackles. It's deliverance from this life and being with God. So he says, through your prayers, I know that I'll be okay and he knows, like, when you hear Paul talk about prayer, he talks about these, like, this urgency, this dependency, this desperation. That, like, the more I'm learning about prayer, Logan and I are reading this book uh, that, that Pastor Tom gave us. Um, the name of it's leaving me right now, but it's about, like, just Paul Miller. It, he talks about how, like, following Jesus, Jesus kept looking at these childlike faith people. And he's like, that's what it's about. These people that like didn't know much, but they knew I'm broken and I need God, that, that's the, what he, the attitude he loves. And Paul's attitude towards his father is like, I'm gonna pray like you are the one with the power. I'm gonna pray like you are the one who can change things. I'm gonna pray like you are the one in control because you are. It doesn't have to be well-defined. It doesn't have to be well-thought-out. It doesn't have to be this incredible thing it can just be this cry out to God. In Philippians 4, he talks about anxiety. And he, he, he kind of says, let the words fall out of your mouth. Which I'm so happy because in a moment of anxiety, I, I don't know how to speak in these and nows. I just don't. And, and to be a father now and to have children and know what their attitude is of them coming to me, I don't say, hey, come back and say it the right way. Okay? I heard you fall. I see the scrape on your leg. I know how to help you, but until you have the right words come out of your mouth, I will not help you. No, what kind of father is that? No, instead, my attitude towards them is just come to me, let the words fall out of your mouth. And as an infant, you don't even know words. So why is it that as a believer, we think that we should just know how to talk to God from the moment we meet him? No, sometimes you're gonna have to learn how to talk to God. This attitude of desperation. And then he, he gets into this, like, Paul after this, it's like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And, and then he says that, like, if I'm going to live in the flesh, it's fruitful labor. And then he gets in, the, it's like he stops, and it's like this kind of, like, broken up thing. He says, yet which I shall not, shall choose, I cannot tell. Um, but in verse 23, 22, 23, he says, yet, which I cannot tell, he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. That's what he's talking about, to die as gain, to be with God is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary. He says, convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that with me you'll have ample cause for joy, glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He's like, he stops and he's like, I want to be here, but I want to be there and like, his attitude is that of like, man, it would just be better to be with God. He has this relationship with God where he's like, man, it, it, it would be better to be with him. He has this high view of God that says, I want to be with you. I want to be near you. He has such affection and intimacy with God. He views death as not the end, but the beginning, the continuation. Even the way that it's phrased there, 
He says to die. He doesn't say death. It's like the word in Greek is like a pass-through. It's like not the end. It's just like the act of death is the beginning of being with God. He has this attitude of like, I don't know, I, I want to get there already. These chains have been hard. And it would just be better to be with God. One of the most incredible things about being in a church that's really old is that we have some really awesome older people. And um, it, it's cool. I've gotten to go on, on several visits with Pastor Eddie to, to see people that are um, not able to come out of their home or not able to be at services uh, much longer. And I just remember going and visiting someone and, and hearing someone say, I'm ready to go and be with Jesus. And I remember like being young and being in ministry and just being like, man, I want that affection for Jesus. I want to get to the end of my life. Like Paul's kind of arguing here, whether that's in six years or 60 years and go, I just love God so much. It's going to be such an awesome thing. It's going to be better. I love Romans 21, where it says that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's going to make every wrong right. I want that. I want it now. But I know that right now God has me here. So I long for that. But I also trust that God has me here for a reason. So what Paul said is, this is fruitful labor. But that comes from knowing the heart of your father. The third thing, Paul knows his future. Paul knows his future. In the beginning of verse, the end of verse 18, he says, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And then he says at the beginning of verse 19, or the end of verse 18 again, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. He says the same thing in Philippians 4 when he says rejoice. Again, I tell you to rejoice. There's this attitude of like, hey, can I tell you what's important? Be glad in God. Be thankful, be, have some gratitude. Like Paul is telling them, hey, take a minute and be glad in God. And what, how do you do that? How do you stop and be glad in God? I think you have to stop and go, God, what are your promises? What are the things that you've told me? What, where, where, did you, where did I come from? How good is the Father? How, you, you have to meditate and know who God is in order to rejoice I will be glad. I will do these things. Philippians 4, verse 11 through 13, right after his, his talk on anxiety, he says this. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned that in whatever situation that I am to be content. I am to be content, that future tense. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through, through him who strengthens me. I know how to be up. I know how to be down. In Philippians 3, 7, he says this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted it at loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He has this attitude 
Because he's seen the mountaintop and he's seen the valley and he says, I wouldn't trade all the riches in the world. He's speaking to a very rich person in this church in Philippi and he's saying, listen, whatever riches you can offer, whatever vengeance this life can give, whatever liberty, whatever justice this life can offer, it's not worth it. I would personally lay that down. I've seen it and it's not worth it. I would rather have Jesus than anything else in this world. I want to end by looking at verse, um, verse 20. Um, Paul uses a couple words that I kind of moved over at the beginning, but I, I think they're, they're important as we finish. Verse 20, he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says it's my hope and my eager expectation. When he says it's my hope, he's not saying like, man, I hope that the Astros don't win. I hope that I, you know, get a something good happens to me. I hope, like it's not this just like loose up in the air hope. He's saying it is like, it is his foundation. It is what he has to bank on. This is what he's based his life on, this hope. And that word is kind of a twofold in the Greek where hope is one meaning for it. Eager expectation is the other interpretation of it, the translation. And that word eager expectation, it's almost like the way that I saw it explained is, it is it's like you're straining your neck to go see around the corner to see what is coming next. Paul's living his life, not just for today, but he's able to do all these things. He's able to look at his chains. He's able to look at his present situation and say, things are good. I get to serve God. So it's whether I die or whether I live, it's great. Because he's craning his neck, looking towards what's in the future. And he says, I know, and it is good. It's not just this abstract idea. He's taken the promises of God and said, I trust that my father is good enough because I've seen him forgive me so I can trust in him. So my future is secured in him. So I know that I can look at my present situation and say, this is not what I would choose. This is not what I would want. This is not the job I want. This isn't the, the job that I thought I would have as a degree. I'm in school longer than I want. I'm not in the relational status that I want. I'm not making the money that I want. And look back and go, God, you are good. And I will be obedient because I know where my future rests. He brings the win. If we're obedient, it doesn't matter if we fail on this earth or not. If we are obedient to God, our life will be a success when we get to heaven. And he says, why should I let you in? Because of Jesus. So that whether it's by life or by death, we get to know that it's him. I, I get, um, my, my wife stays at home with my boys, so... My boys are always at home when I get home for the most part. And um, a lot of times my wife will send me the text because she's at home with three children. Hey, when will you be home? Um, because she needs an adult in the, in the room that, that, you know, is not a child. And um, so I'll send her a time frame. And then I'll notice on our doorbell camera, I'll see our oldest thatch come out. And then I'll see rigs normally and then I'll see Jet and they'll sit on the porch and they're looking and they know which direction I come from and they're looking on the porch and they're looking 
They're waiting with eager expectation and hope at the arrival of their father. Now, it's by God's grace that I've gotten to come home to them every day. It's by God's grace that nothing's happened to me, but they know that they will wait there and they'll see my car pull in the driveway and I'll put it in park and then they can come out to me and I'll accept them with open arms. Why? Because I've done that hundreds of times over. And Thatch, since he was really, really little, would look, he'd wait at the, at the screen door, he'd wait at that glass door and he'd wait and he'd pound on the glass and he would wait. Because he knows that his father is coming home. And our God is so good If he has forgiven you, we can have faith that his promises are true, that he's coming back for you, that when you die, that is not the end. So we live life with this hope that like, man, I can can be obedient to God. Why? Because I know that my father is coming. He'll make things right. He's good. So I can try my best. I want to give him my all, but what if my all's not enough? His is enough. He's coming back for us. Paul's statement here that it's my eager expectation and hope that I shall not be ashamed. He's not just saying like that I won't be embarrassed. What he's arguing for here is that like he won't have the list of his sins brought out at the end of his life Okay, you did this. This is the payment for that. This is what you're going to have to do. This is the sin that you did on this day. This is the attitude. This is what you did. This is how you harmed someone. This is that ill intent that you had. This is, he won't be ashamed where those will be made public knowledge. That he knows that when he gets to heaven, he won't be ashamed. Why? Because when he stands in front of the great white throne of judgment, he won't have anything to say besides look at Jesus' hands, look at Jesus' feet. He's why I can come in. He can't look and compare to everybody else and say, look at the other missionaries. Like, my red line in the maps in the back is longer than anybody else. Like, I've, I've done more. He won't say, look at how much stuff I amassed. Look at how good I was. He, he knows that, like, All of that will bring him shame, but he knows that because of Jesus, he won't be ashamed. So I want to ask you, if you're standing there, what do you have to say to God? Can you point to your goodness? Can you point to what you have to do? Because the reasons that Paul has a win in life, if you look at these points, if you look at what Philippians 1 says, it's not because of Paul. It's because of Jesus. So what would you say? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads.